Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and on this episode, we have Alex Salnikoff, who is the head of product and co-founder of Rarible. Alex, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me over. Yeah, absolutely. So we usually like to start these off with just give us a little bit of your background and how did you get into crypto? That's a fine story, actually. So I've been studying in the university just like my second or first or second grade. And there was a project um, known back then that basically provided you with fiat on ramp and off ramp to crypto back then, like it was 2012. And uh, me and my friend, we, we met together when I did some some uh, crazy viral project during during my first year in the university. And we decided, well, this sounds exciting. We should build something. The, that project earned like a million dollars in a year. And that was like an absolutely mind-blowing sum of, of value for me back then. And we thought, we, we also want to have a million dollars. And by the way, let's read all that up about crypto. So I, I dig up and I read the Bitcoin white paper and it absolutely blew my mind, right? The, the, the notion of like a, the decentralization, interstate money, all the things that we know that came from there. And I'm a technical person and I, I had this instant realization in my mind that with that technology, I am the only person who can control my money. And I came from this country, which isn't really often respects all the rights and stuff like that. That's why the specifically idea of being sovereign about how you interact with your own funds, with your own assets, it was very comforting. That like I knew that I'm an IT guy, I can write that script that will make a transaction. And even if I, I know, even if I lose my wallet, I can go to another wallet. All these, all these ideas. They've been just super fitting into me. I studied one of the like best economic universities. That's why I understood the tokenomics, the inflation. No, just just all the ideas landed super smoothly. And I basically never left the space. I almost haven't seen people who left the space, actually. Almost everyone who has joined Scripta never leaves. Yeah, that's very true. So Crypto was very interesting to you because not only do you have a technical coding IT background and finance and economics background, but you also come from a country where the lack of respect for, I guess, personal assets was was not necessarily there. Which country was that exactly? That's Russia. So just during the last 30, 40 years in Russia, there was a couple of uh, like money reforms that basically denominated money, made all sorts of weird stuff with money. And people generally don't trust banks in Russia. They, they go out and on the day of the paycheck, they cash it out completely because, oh, we don't trust this bank. Well, obviously, uh, it, it's not the same anymore, but still this idea of, uh, okay, I'll, I'll better do it myself. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you live in Russia now? Where Where is your hometown now? Well, starting as for two days ago, it's United States. Wow, that's great news. So you'll be living in Miami then full time? Well, probably between Miami and New York. Wow, that's exciting. Welcome to the States, Alex. That's that's good news. Um, so what, I guess, going back to Russia, like what is the general sentiment of cryptocurrency and DeFi and NFTs in Russia? It's a very interesting question. So I think the general sentiment is the following. So first of all, an ex-Soviet Union country has just the brilliant IT industry and university school, just one of the best in the world, maybe maybe even the best. People study mathematics, physics all the time. That's why the all, all sorts of IT guys, they absolutely love crypto because it's almost like the technocratic win of IT guys over the finance guys, right? Now, now okay, 
now now we are doing finance guys not you uh that's what it guys think and overall this makes this whole thing very very appealing to the whole it crowd on the other hand there is a lot of like regulatory issues and country has always been strict on controlling flows of capital you can't just send the money abroad and, and from abroad that's why there has been always this tension of okay what what can we do so as for now it is it is uh, allowed to just like hold assets transfer assets but not like exchange them inside the country and not to use as a legal tender and you've got a really fascinating background alex and thanks for sharing all that so i guess my next question is let's talk about rarible and well, just explain for our audience, for those who might not be familiar, you know, what is Rarible and what does the Rarible protocol do? Okay, so Rarible started a little bit more than two years ago uh, on the idea stage exactly 2.5 years ago. So during all this time, being in crypto, I've been mostly doing financial projects like, okay, let's do like exchange or trading robot. We did like just marvelous technical pieces, okay, like million trades per second matching engine written in some like low level uh, programming language that allows you to do like short sales and leverages. So this concepts of liquidity and stuff like that is super familiar for me. And we've been always doing that. And at some point we thought like, why are we doing all that boring stuff? It's like 0.1% APY. I, I call it uh, this way is the me. And let's do something fun. Basically what was fun back then, it was NFTs, right? It was 2019, uh, not a lot of people still in the NFT space, but what I realized is that every wallet had NFT support, right? Trust wallet, MetaMask, there was always this tab, collectibles, which was kind of empty uh, and in every wallet and a lot of infrastructure was built and there were marketplaces. And I saw that, well, in NFTs, they are really consumer friendly because why BTC CRV pool, right? How do you explain that to, to somebody? Well, if it's NFTs, okay, it's just it's just an item. You have it in your wallet, like just as a card. Look at it; it's like right here, right that brain that simple. Also, like in 2017 and 918, it was still like a little bit hard to use blockchain and. I don't know if you remember the missed wallets that you needed to download 200 gigabytes of data to your computer to, to use a smart contract, stuff like that. So that's how, yeah, sorry for the long intro, but that's how the verbal was born, basically. We, we thought, okay, there is a lot of infrastructure, but there is not so many NFTs. And we can, came up with the platform that allows you to create NFTs and brought this, like, free spirit more or less with us because being that many gears in the space it kind of in the dna so there was a couple platforms like super rare back then but you needed to verify yourself right to start creating nfts so we thought why don't we just allow it to anyone so we we, we came up with, with with this just a simple form okay upload your picture a name a description and connect your wallet and hit the mint button and also, of course, okay, let's assign the price now. And there was just a simple one, one page feed that you can still see on Rarible if you scroll down everything, right? There was just one simple feed without any filters. Okay, here's the, all the items that are on sale. So at first we were basically like mostly minting platform. And then over time we evolved into the full featured marketplace. We indexed all NFTs that exist on Ethereum. Every collection, every NFT made them available for sale. We introduced royalties. Uh, we introduced filters. We introduced refresh, leaderboards, stuff like that. So basically evolved into the full-featured secondary market marketplace. And then that was basically maybe 1.5 years after we all started. And... Then we thought, okay, we, we spend that many time to actually create something useful, something meaningful and marketplace. And we see a lot of other people are doing their own NFT projects. 
So and it's really hard. You need to build an index here. You need to build a smart contract. That's why we took this actually two parts, the smart contract layer and the indexing layer. And we spun them off of the marketplace into its own separate product, variable protocol that you can build an NFT project on top of. So it's basically the infrastructure that would allow you to create your own NFT marketplace in like two or three months instead of two years, right? That obviously depends on what, what where it goes if you want to sell any NFT. So you need the full Ethereum indexer. That would be fairly hard. And also we realized at some point, so we launched the token, uh, the governance token on the platform, and we realized that at some point that it's actually quite hard to govern the front-end business. And that's why we separated a protocol and made it neutral. So there is very low things that you can you can actually change on the protocol in terms of the protocol shows every NFT without the blacklist feature, right, that we have on the front-end. So it's it's like very, very neutral, open source and infrastructure infrastructure layer that is built with all these community principles, day zero, right? Open source, smart contract, community governed, um, complete, complete uh, set of crypto rules that we all know and follow. That yeah. was a long answer. Oh, that was a great answer. Thank you very much. And I feel like, you know, when you're in the crypto space, especially two and a half years ago when you started Rarible, it, it takes a lot of conviction to take an idea and put forth a lot of your time, effort, and resources into creating a protocol just based off the idea. But you're able to do that with other co-founders. And I'm just curious to what was the relationship that you had with your other co-founders prior to founding uh, Rarible? Like, where did y'all meet? How did y'all interact? What is that relationship like today? So there was like more or less four people at the start of the of this whole idea. That was me, Alexi, the CEO of Rarible, the Eugeni, the CTO, and Ilya, the head of design. So Ahead of us, we're just sitting in a cafe in, in the summer Chinese cuisine cafe, and we came up with that idea. So prior to that, we met with Alexi in 2017 during the bull market when everyone was, was, was doing their own ERC-20 tokens. And we collaborated on the platform that allowed you to issue ERC-20 tokens. So for everyone who, who, was, who wanted to issue tokens... So you can kind of feel the, the rhyme with the NFT issuance. And I was just amazed by the technology level that the guys brought. It was actually super reliable, uh, super cheap, actually, in the development cost. And the guys even written some part of the smart contracts in, in Assembler in some very, very low level language that allowed them to optimize it uh, heavily. So... I was just blown away by the technical level. And basically since then, we, we just kept talking with Alexei about, oh, what about this in space? What about this in space? And eventually that ended up being a project together. While with Ilya, we were working for several years before. Uh, he was doing all, all the designs for all the projects that I did in crypto for, for more or less like five years after we met with him. He previously worked at Yandex. It's like a big Russian tech company, big tech in Russia, basically the Google. Uh, he shipped like projects to tens of millions of people on his job. So he's he's really, really talented designer. The first time he created a logo for us and I, I fell in love with, with everything that he does. And the CEO, the Eugeni, he worked with Alexei for probably 10 years before so it was kind of like me and Ilya and Alexei and Eugeni joined forces. Eugeni is like brilliant physician. He represented his country on the world physics contest. And Alexei studied physics at school. I actually received uh, like one of the, I received the top mark on the state exam on physics. So I don't know, it kind of felt the same vibe altogether. 
our relationship is just perfect now. We we're all enjoying this, and this this is super fun. I just think it's interesting to hear what the relationship was like, you know, prior to the founding of protocols, and you know, just kind of how all that formed and came together. But I think it's fair to say that, especially compared to the rest of the general NFT market, that you were pretty early to NFTs. And so I'm I'm curious to like, so why did you have this conviction in NFTs so early on? And what was your first NFT to purchase? My first NFT to purchase. So my first, in, it, it's still in my, my wallet, actually. You hardly can say that it's a real NFT, but that actually partially related to why I had this conviction. So when we brainstormed that idea about, about the NFT issues and the marketplace tool, we all came home and we created a couple of NFTs just with, without, without minting tools. And Ilya, the head of design, he created a beautiful NFT of a skateboard deck that had an AR symbol on it. So you can like point your, your phone on it and it would show you something. I, I don't even remember what. It basically felt like a very tangible thing. And this is skateboard, skateboard deck. It has uh, really, uh, really solid strokes around it. So you almost feel like this is an like, item that belongs to you, like a physical sense of ownership when you have it in your wallet. And uh, he created that. He sold it to me. And I sold it back to him. And he sold it back to me. And the, the mere joy and fun of this process, it was kind of... It was tangible how emotionally cool and fun and, and and sticky that is. So basically, we flipped NFTs and we loved it. And that's why we built the platform. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so your role, Alex, at Rarible is the head of product. Can you give us a little background into what it means to be the head of product at Rarible and just kind of what your day-to-day looks like? My day-to-day is like heavily changing actually over these two years. So first I was the, the just head of product and the only product manager on the team. And for the first whole year of the wearable experience, I was basically the person who worked with the set of engineers. And I was constantly on Twitter. I was researching the space. Okay, what should we do? Talking to the users, talking to the community. Okay, guys, like just pour all the feedback into me and we will build something cool for you. So getting the user feedback, digesting it and coming up with the ideas. Okay, what what are the features that we should build? And then managing the team to actually build them. And managing the team of engineers is mostly, okay, we have a daily call, right? We, we will all go to this call, we discuss things, and then the next day we thought, okay, what, what have we built? Every week there is a planning. So it's a fairly standard process. I'm pretty sure a lot of you know that if you've ever been in the engineering company or done some, some, some projects yourself. So... That was my day-to-day job for, for a long time, and I really enjoyed that. And then we basically scaled that. So we went from one product team to six product teams. And more or less now, you can only start to see the results of that stuff. So all the first half of the 2021, we spent on scaling the team. We, we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of product managers now. And being head of product means mostly interacting with product managers. And lately, my role changed again. So we welcomed Nas Diba, the VP product from Avi, who previously worked at Dharma as a really senior manager to work with the other product managers. So mostly what I've been doing now is researching and setting up the strategy. It would be the good idea to build because I still constantly on Twitter, talking to people, talking to the guys, understanding what, what should we do. Yeah, and is some of the feedback that you're getting from the community DAO-related? Because I know we have the Rarible protocol and we've got the interface that sits on top of it. And then you've got the token as well. But is there a DAO for the Rarible protocol? And are there any plans of going through DAOification? 
Oh yeah, and there is a DAO of the protocol and there is a separate Twitter handle. You can find it on Twitter. It's like variable DAO. It's a really vibrant community of like 2,000 people that are doing marketing, that are doing business development, that are making grants to people who built on top of the protocol. So it's a very, very nascent and innovative group of people. We feel like the DAO currently today is like, you know, Google X. There is a lot of innovative people, you know, a lot of like young and hungry minds that are just crunching ideas and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. And what are, in your mind, some of the major hurdles that you have experienced, the DAO has experienced by just having a DAO in general, I guess, like from organizational structure standpoint, or just the ability to, to get things done? Like, what are some of the struggles that y'all have experienced personally? Well, so the DAO is the first experience that we that we had with DAO is initially when we just launched all this. So there was a lot of activity in DAO from the creator side. And the instant feedback and experience was, okay, it is really, really hard to try to align everyone on some difficult economics rules or something like that. So people don't really want to vote. And sometimes when they vote, it's, it's like not a very opinionated vote. And that's why we started to to restructure this all, moved DAO and talking mostly to the protocol side, not to the creator and marketplace front-end side. And then there was this understanding that, okay, it's still hard, you know, to actually employ people into the DAO. A lot of them need some benefits uh, that they want to be employed officially at some company. And DAO rarely can do that. And when they um, are employed, you need to vote on their employment. And a lot of people feel insecure about this when that happens with, with the vote rather than like with some interview process. And scaling the DAO and bringing a really, really experienced people is really hard. In DAOs, we feel like there is a lot of fresh energy, a lot of young people, and most of them are almost seeking like their first or second or third job or opportunity in the DAO because they feel like this, this is the future of organizations. So if you try to scale the, the organization and you need to hire some like very senior managers, a lot of them are like uh, require more and more benefits and and feel and feel a little bit unstructured and weird when they operate in the DAO environment. Basically, DAOs for today are really good if you need to make some democratic investment decisions, like what should be in the index or what, where we should invest, uh, while just actually delivering a product. It's still much harder in the DAO environment, just in the traditional, like the, the centralized, um, centrally managed style organization. But you have a manager that tries to manage the effectiveness of the company, put tasks, enjoy accountability, uh, embrace accountability, and stuff like that. So that was fairly unstructured, but I don't know, maybe some of that resonated. No, oh, yeah, it definitely resonated. And, you know, I think DAOs are such a new and nascent type of way to organize labor and organize human coordination that, you know, I think it's just natural that we're going to run into issues like that. We've obviously run into our own issues at the NX Co-op. I say obviously because everyone obviously is it runs into their own type of scaling issues when it comes from uh, talent management and organization coordination, cooperation from a DAO. Um but I'm curious about, so Alex, what about you and your co-founders as far as a compensation standpoint? So are y'all compensated by the DAO or are you compensated from an organization uh, that manages the front end? We are compensated from the organization that manages the front end. Okay, I was just curious about that. And so what is the main driver for the Rarible's DAO's treasury and the Rarible organization who manages the front ends, I guess, treasury as well. Like, how does the Rarible protocol make money and distribute that to, um, I guess, the, the stakeholders? 
Well, this is the very, very good question. So one of the best things about the protocol is, uh, and one of the most innovative things that I, I personally just love that we did, is the fact that when you run a front end that works on top of the protocol, you are actually adding your own front end fees on top of the protocol fees. So there is some baseline protocol fee, which is currently zero. And the protocol empowers the front end that runs on top of that. So whoever brings the listing or the buyer to the protocol, they add their own fee to the order. So imagine that you run a minting service through which people are creating NFTs and put them on sale, something like Coco NFT does. And then somebody else uh, and it's working on top of the protocol and somebody else is running the uh, storefront business when they curate top 10 collections or artists every day and present them in a curated way on their own website so that people who come there know that this is the quality projects. So if this second business would curate something that the first business that your business created to the protocol, and then both of these businesses would receive front-end fees. One of them would receive a front-end fees for bringing the sale, the listing, and another one would receive the front-end fee for bringing the buyer. So there is a shared order book. Everyone is looking in the same like space of listings and purchases. You can filter that the way you want and whoever you brought to the same space, you got the fees from them. So that might hint to you how this all is set up. So the current DAO treasury is consists of rarity only. So the protocol does not generate fees at the moment. And DAO is, is distributing this, this rarity treasury to people who build on top of the protocol just to incentivize people to align them into the common the governance model. And frontends, earn fees, and wearable.com is one of the customers of the protocol actually and it has no preferences it's an equal customer as anybody else charges its own front-end fees to its own like like private corporation okay yeah that's actually very helpful yeah um and so what i mean how does rarible differentiate itself from the competition um there seems to be a lot of competition popping up uh recently and what, in your mind, sets Rarible apart from the rest of the crowd? Well, obviously, the first part is that we are not only marketplace, but we're marketplace and protocol, which is like highly attractive for developers. And we have a token, which makes the community really a stakeholder in this whole stuff. And that's why the like, community is really incentivized to send people to Rarible. Like if among all the other things equal, right? If it doesn't matter where you want to trade, uh, you want to trade where, where your, your bags are. And recently we just uh, implemented this uh, open sea orders mirroring. So whenever you come to Rarible, you, you can actually see anything that's available both on Rarible and open sea. So you have all the same supply, even better, even bigger. We have, you have both Rarible and open sea supply. And the second point would be that we are multi-chain. We are the first marketplace that actually went to multiple L1s. We support Flow and Tezos blockchains. And soon we will add Solana and, and Polygon. This has been already announced. We're working on it. So it's kind of like one-stop shop for, for everyone in NFTs. At first, you come, you create your own NFT. Then you get bigger on the marketplace. You start trading and flipping. And then you grow and you create your own project based on variable protocol. Obviously, variable protocol on Flow and on Tezos is also available for developers to build on top. Yes, and the same will be for other chains. So imagine this as kind of, okay, there is a ton of NFTs everywhere across different chains, across different marketplaces, and you can find them all on Rarible under one umbrella and under one just unified thing. And the biggest and best part of that 
is that community is at stake. You can you can realize it's not like just you are pump, pumping someone else's stuff when when you use it. Okay, and when you're bringing in the orders, I guess the binds or what's available for sale on OpenSea, that kind of seems like you're taking on an an NFT aggregator role. So I guess my next question is, do you plan on implementing any other protocols? Like I know NFTX, maybe you you could query their NFT vaults that they have. Or are there any plans to do that? Oh yeah, actually interesting. So the next one in the pipeline would be probably integrating CryptoPunks marketplace to orders to wearable just out of just the whole due respect to the OG community, right? And I very love this idea about integrating NFTX. So yeah, you're right. It, it is sort of an aggregation strategy in addition to the marketplace strategy. Right, because I was playing around the other day and I got on the Genie XYZ protocol just to see what it was like. And I noticed that it was not only pulling OpenSea, but it was also pulling NFTX. And I kind of just had this aha moment about NFT aggregators and what that future could potentially look like. So I was just wondering if y'all were, what y'all's plans were for implementing other things like that. I also want to talk about OpenSea a little bit more, obviously, because it is your main competitor as Rarible. Just what are your views on OpenSea in general? What is OpenSea doing right? And what are some of the major shortfalls that you feel like users have with I don't know, interacting with OpenSea? Yeah, so OpenSea are great guys. They've been around in the space for longer than anyone else. They actually created that infrastructure that was there that allowed every wallet to have this collectible tab. Like half of the wallets use like their their API, and I think the main uh, so kudos to the team. Uh, they are like absolutely made a lot of effort and spent a lot of times out of their lives to make the NFTs a real thing. So. We respect the team completely. And obviously what they're doing right is doing all that, doing uh, keeping the, the liquidity of the marketplace big, making this discovery efforts, okay, all these collectibles. We were relatively late to the party, to the PFP trend. We were mostly like, okay, art as a, as a marketplace of art based on individual creators while the collectibles being like the open sea bread for for several years all these things as for like okay reveal the metadata refresh the metadata uh, filter by trade all that stuff it basically was was invented by open sea and and they did right so one of the biggest like downsides of all that is they are a fairly centralized company and it's like the Coinbase right uh, model. You don't have the custody of the funds. Of course, they they don't custody the the funds, and and that's the step away from from the Binance Coinbase models. But overall, still, it's 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 a quite centralized company, and very much not the community based, and maybe maybe a little bit slow to well, lately. And since they they have so much like responsibility to actually support everything that they already done, so it's not that we see a lot of stuff there. They promised multi-chain like Tezos flow maybe a year ago. We were able to to get there. Uh, they weren't. So I think they're doing a lot of things right, and obviously some of the things are, are not like super great. Uh, one of the latest examples would be this orders. Uh, when we started to pull up OpenSea orders, there was a big like drama on Twitter that some people were able to buy assets below the floor price. That's because like some of the orders weren't actually canceled on chain, but were just hidden from the front end. So stuff like that maybe maybe shows that the the guys are really really, really underwater with with supporting all all the great things that they done. Yeah, I remember hearing about that drama on Twitter as well. And that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. But yeah, I mean, I think that's also part of not being open sourced, you know, with your protocol. Because if you're open sourced, 
you can see everything on chain and all bugs can be found with the more eyes that are on the open source protocol, which is where I think y'all benefit there as well. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, other side chains, but what about layer two, like Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Sync, Starkware? What's the future lie? What does the future look like for Rarible on the layer two front? So we've researched a lot of information about layer twos a while ago, actually, maybe 1.5 years ago. And surprisingly, there is much more NFTs on another layer ones than on layer twos. Most of the layer twos are targeting uh, like DeFi applications. So Arbitrum Optimism, what you would see there would be mostly DeFi apps and every so the Arbitrum Optimism and Phantom, I guess, they are all like optimistic rollups. And the technology itself is relies on these watchtowers that they need to monitor the situation when you withdraw funds from this rollup. And that uh, architecturally imposes some limitations that you need to wait for like seven days until you can withdraw the asset or some like any other long period of time. So not nearly instant. I feel like this is a big downside for NFT specifically because for the DeFi, you can actually not wait seven days, but somebody can use it, can act as a liquidity provider and that can, a person can give you his own money and wait for seven days himself instead of you waiting. That's always not possible with NFTs. There's only one NFT of the kind. Somebody cannot give you his NFT while he waits for, for your NFT to come. So I'm not sure. Although on the other hand, somebody can argue that you don't really want to move NFTs really often from the uh, layer 2 to layer 1. They will mostly live inside layer 2. So layer twos are generally not there yet. The the only one that is there in terms of NFTs is Polygon, which we're integrating. And I'm super, super curious about ZK rollups, which is actually like the next technology that will come after optimistic rollups. The Starkware team, Starknet, ZK Sync team are doing a great job in this realm. So it's it's still early for layer twos, but we're 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 constantly looking at that. Right. Because I think that there are a lot of people in the space who foresee a future where possibly Ethereum is mainly just a settlement chain for L2s in side chains. And I think a lot of people are starting to speculate and figure out, you know, what does that mean for NFTs? that are on mainnet that are on the layer one you know if if the base layer mainnet does become too gas intensive for regular retail users to operate i don't know like what happens to the nfts that are on layer ones and that's kind of why i was getting at that uh, layer two question is you know is there a way to move those from mainnet up to a layer two to kind of, I don't know, make the gas fee less intensive. Because I feel like NFTs are a very retail-centric product where, you know, if you have DeFi protocols on mainnet, probably not as bad, right? You can use institutions or, or major whales or players using that. But for NFTs, it's a, it's a little different. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on all that? Well... Of course, you can move NFTs from layer one to layer two to cheapen the gas prices. They would get locked on the layer one. They would be minted as new NFTs on the layer two. And the same, you can do that today with Polygon. You can move your, your CryptoPunk to Polygon, right? And, and enjoy the almost nearly zero fees uh, on transacting inside Polygon. And then you can move it back and you would get your own CryptoPunk back. That's already possible, and that's what will happen with NFTs, really, if Ethereum becomes too expensive and too gas-heavy. Now, we are coming to this Ethereum 2.0 stage, when Ethereum is doing much more and more progress, and probably will even deploy the beacon and chain with cross-chain environments until 2022. Right, so the merge can happen until 2022. Well, until the end of the year 2022. And that will 
simplify things because you won't spend money on on mining anymore, right? So eventually, I think the gas prices long term on Ethereum will be relatively as these as if they are now. So maybe they won't get too much more expensive than this. Ethereum will optimize, and that's why this would will, will rise. And on the side chains, it will be lower, but on the main net, it will be the same. That's that would be my like bet. Okay. Another question I have is just what are some exciting developments and trends that you are seeing in the NFT space? Like I know play to earn is very big right now. Music NFTs are starting to come into their own photography, ticketing for concerts and events, uh, more PFPs. PFPs will never end, apparently. Um, what? Yeah, just what's exciting to you on the horizon? It's a very, very good question. So what's personally exciting to me is actually this whole concept of composability. We achieved something incredible in the DeFi space. You can take a million dollar worth of loan under seconds, right? If you have appreciated asset, if you have asset that is appraised, if somebody knows how much your asset costs, you can get a loan against it in seconds. So the fractionalization, the financialization of NFTs, for example, the purchase finance. Imagine a, a mortgage for the board ape. You can't buy your board ape now. But what you can do, you can make a down payment. And then this board ape would be held in custody and you would pay oh, some small amount of money for 10 years for this board ape. And then it will become yours. And meanwhile, you can use it as your PFP on Twitter. How awesome is that? And then at some point in time, we can connect real world assets. So once we solve this like legal issues and you can represent your house as an NFT and you would be able to take a mortgage for your house under seconds rather than in weeks as of it works now. So something like that is, is really fascinating to me. This like the real deep development in innovation, allowing insurances, automation of capital in regards with the NFT. And the biggest thing that we need to do is to find a way how to price NFTs. So as soon as we can price an NFT on chain, there can be an explosion of all these financial uh, instruments. This is very exciting. And on the other hand, in the traditional world, I think what's, what's exciting to me is just the notion of we all buy a lot of physical items. And a lot of these physical items, they don't have any physical utility. They are mostly like intellectual utility. Imagine you bought a Star Wars toy, right, for, for your children. They don't have to be physical at all. They can be purely digital. So digital fashion, digital toys, digital goods, just converting the like half of the current e-commerce into the digital e-commerce, which is truly independent and open and neutral is another big thing that fascinates me. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm also curious as to what other protocols outside of the rareable ecosystem from a metaverse standpoint, like what other protocols and projects have you been paying attention to that's kind of catching your eye lately? Or or in DeFi protocols too, for that matter, if you have some of those as well. Yeah, so the the purchase finance uh, protocols, the, the NFT lending and borrowing union protocol is a nice one. There was one else is Upshot. A, it's an NFT pricing protocol. So stuff like that really is something that I, I, I keep following. And on the other hand, in DeFi, I think we are coming to this uh, to this moment when all the giant uh, protocols like, like Aave and Compound are actually become institutional, inst- almost like government grade big projects when, when the large institution can go there and borrow money. So like $26 billion TVL on Aave, Aave Arc, and that is like a, a more centralized version, corporate version of Aave. I think 
this is just I know we've all been dreaming about that in 2011 when Bitcoin just started. We've been dreaming about making it a legal tender. We've been dreaming about uh, governments adopting Bitcoin, putting that in the balance sheet. And I'm just really fascinated how fast this happened after like 2017, when there was like a, an empty ground in all of these realms. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see the strides that both Compound and Aave have been able to make with Aave Arc and Compound Treasury. And it's going to be very interesting to see how those two products that are getting developed evolve over time. And interesting to see, you know, which institutions are actually going to be using those DeFi protocols. The KYC. DeFi, which kind of, do you not feel like that kind of goes against the ethos of crypto in a way? I don't think at all, actually. So the ethos of crypto is decentralization. And I don't think it's necessarily against the interacting with the government. So if United States, China, and, and, and all the sovereign countries that we have in the world would all interact with the same like blockchain, right? For with Bitcoin, for example, it would be the perfect decentralization because the, the same concepts of game theory would apply. None of them can can cheat the other. And uh, it works on, on any grade like that. I've been thinking about it for a while, actually. And um, that might be an unpopular position, but I feel like the real innovation in blockchain happened, like th there are like two core things. The first one was actually getting a wallet into the user's hands. And what that means is that every user that uses blockchain now have a digital signature, the true and Digital signature is called one of the greatest inventions of twenty uh, of like the twenty first and probably not twenty first, probably twentieth century, right? In mathematics, so you give it a digital signature into every person's hands, and then the blockchain is is merely a database that stores these digital signatures in a consistent way. So. Even if you imagine if you keep the, all the same systems as, as they work today, but you put them on a blockchain, you put court on the blockchain, you put banks on the blockchain, you, you put compliance on the blockchain, but would just make this utilizing digital signature. If, if somebody needs to sign in the court, right, to, to release your funds, then the system will, will still be like much, much better than it exists now, even if we keep all the same things. And that's even without saying that we will innovate and create better systems. So even if, if we keep the current system, it will be even better. I completely agree with you, Alex. And that's just a question that I ask because, you know, you kind of just see people on Twitter say things about that related to Ave Arc and Compound Treasury. So it's just kind of good to get other people's uh, thoughts on that when they're not just trying to, you know, tweet to get interactions from people. Yeah, so we're running up on time. I got a few more questions left for you, Alex. So at the next co-op, we have a product called the Metaverse Index. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And the Rari token is included in the Metaverse Index. Well, first I'll ask, like, do you, do you own any MVI, the Metaverse token? Um, and regardless, uh, what protocols would you like to see included in the Metaverse Index that aren't already? It's a very, very good question. First of all, I probably do not own any Metaverse Index, and that's a PT. I'm a big fan of DPI, actually. Whenever anybody of my friends just asking where, where should I put my money in crypto if I don't know anything, like five years ago, I was answering Bitcoin. Two years ago, I was answering Ethereum. Now I'm answering DPI. It's a very, very big uh, and exciting thing. So Metaverse would probably be like my next year answer to every of my friends that don't know where to put their money in a, in a more or less like a safe way. As for the projects, it's surprisingly not many Metaverses have their tokens. I don't even know why. So obviously like NFT marketplaces are the big stuff in the, in the Metaverse. 
like Decentraland, Mana, or I'm a huge fan of of Digital Land. That was one of my best leaps, actually. The Crypto Voxel Digital Land. And I think every metaverse that has a native token should be there. And personally, I think maybe maybe there would be time when when you will be able to make NFTs part of that index. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're working on. And I think it, the methodologist for that index is Joseph. And I, I he was in here earlier. I don't know if he's still there. But we're working on what we're calling the JPEG index, right? And kind of leveraging the technology of Nifty Museum and NFTX, right? Because that kind of creates liquidity pools for these basically illiquid assets that are NFTs. And so we're working through the engineering constraints on that. There's, you know, issues related to slippage that, you know, kind of come into play too. But that is something that we are working on uh, from an engineering standpoint and plan on releasing sometime this year. So we're really looking forward to that. That's one of the products that I'm most excited about in the Index Coops pipeline for this year. So, yeah, it looks like we're pretty much up on time here, Alex. So I'll just give you the, the final word, the call to action. Where can people go to find out more about you and Rarible? Follow me on Twitter, of course. It's uh, My personal page is Insider0x. And of course, Rarible and at RaribleDAO would be handles that you want to follow on Twitter as well. I'm mostly active there on Twitter. And my call to action would be just, you know, do hard things and have fun. That's, that's a very fulfilling type of living when you do hard things and have fun. I think that's great advice. And uh, thanks again, Alex, for coming on the show. Thanks to everyone who's listening live in the Discord. This is being recorded, so we'll ship this off to get a transcript and get it mixed by my audio engineer. And we'll see y'all next week. Have a good weekend. Thanks again for coming on, Alex. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye.